Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Ingrid Murray, who chairs the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at UNISA, which is one of the largest open distance learning universities in Africa. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. To begin with, you chair the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology. Both disciplines relate to understanding human societies and culture, but can you please explain the differences between these two subjects and where they overlap? So anthropology is the study of human behavior in societies, um, and we look at both past and present. Um, for me, anthropology is trying to understand humans in their context, understanding what shapes and makes us, our similarities, our differences, to understand why, why we do the things that we do. While archaeology is the study of human activity through looking at material culture, and they look at both the the past and also the re more recent few, uh, the present. So, for example, they would look at um, pot shards and fossils dating back uh, to you know back into the past. But they would also they could also look at garbage, for example, what was discarded yesterday in the trash could be important to try and understand the human condition. So in South Africa, generally, um, these two are separate um, disciplines, but they, they, because they're both interested in human behavior, archaeology would look at what anthropologists have said about people and try and use that to, uh, to, to, to sketch um, uh, what people did in the past by looking at what people do now and ethnographies, for example, that I anthropologist has written, while um, anthropologists also have a look at um, material culture. They would also use the insights that archaeologists um, have brought forward to try and understand why, why we do what we do in the current situation, in the current place. And looking at the anthrop anthropological point of view, to what extent does our environment influence human behavior? I think it's, it's a very, uh, we shape our environment and, and our environment shapes us. You know, it's, it's simple stuff. Uh, for example, if you um, go outside today, you know, it's warm or it's cold, so um, you've dressed in a certain way. Um, so your environment shapes what you, the possibilities of what we can do. But at the same time, we change our environment uh, the whole time. So there's, a, um, there's an adjustment between um, humans to their environment, but also how they adapt, uh, how we change the environment that, we, um, that, that, that we're in. And besides looking at sort of the, uh, the climatic aspect and, and uh, ge geography or, or geological components, I think technology is a, is a tremendous influencer in, in how, we, how we behave and, and what we do. Well, technology is a huge influence, but we, it's not a neutral thing. You know, it's not something out there. We've created technology. So 
um, in the same way that it's changed how we behave in certain ways, we've also uh, we've also changed. We've also created technologies to do certain things. Um, so that also then, you know, it, it's it's not separate from one, one from one another. We've created these technologies, and then then create us as well. So it's a significant blend. Uh, it's almost like a an action reaction scenario where one is not independent of the other. Definitely, we it's very interlinked. People have created technologies, so it's not that they're out there and they're part of us, and we react to them, but we created them at the same time. So it's adaptive. Yes, definitely. Within the department, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do and and the responsibilities that come with holding the position of, of chairing the department? So um, I am responsible for coordinating three areas within as a chair of department. It's teaching and learning, research and community development. That's sort of the key, the three key areas that that we're expected to, to make a contribution to as a university. So the, the role of chair of department is really to coordinate struct delivery of uh, on these things. and. For me, the interesting thing is how do I plan, how do I change things so that what we do in terms of teaching, for example, is uh, is interesting, is on time, it's what people want at that stage, um, but also it's the best quality that we can do. In terms of research, it's really allowing people to... Um, to how, do we, how do we support people to get to their own research goals and making that um, available and public? And then how do we engage with communities? So I'm the conduit between larger university structures and my department, my colleagues in the department. And what we try and do is how do we work all work together to get the best possible outcomes for our students and for the country? And UNISA is, I think, a, it's a special institution, being a, a massive distance learning setup. How many students do you have? So in the uh, in UNISA itself, I think we're now at three hundred and fifty thousand. People take a few thousand, and so it's, we're talking massive numbers. In our department, we're we considered one of the smaller departments in the university because we only have about seven thousand students per year. Um, so, so it's, it's we're talking a very different scale than you would have at a contact university. You're right. I mean, some of the the business schools have seven thousand, and I, I say that smiling because you you're a very niche discipline, and to have seven thousand students is is quite significant. Yes, um, we lack in terms of that we have a footprint as anthropology and archaeology with so many students. And a lot of what we do in the department is we are what they call the service course. So students would be studying um, psychology, for example, teaching even, and they would take one or two of our modules as part of their degree package. And just that little um, contact that we have of students, really it's our chance to, to make them think anthropologically you know, which is to, to get them to think critically and to try and understand people in their own context and not 
judge them or prejudge them from the you know the 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 context that they come from but try and understand people as as they see themselves as they are so that's a lot of what we uh, you know, that's kind of where our huge numbers come from. When we look at our postgraduate numbers, it becomes much less. So when people specialize, it becomes less. But we have this unique opportunity as UNESA Anthropology and Archaeology to really influence a huge number of students. And it is a fantastic. It's a fantastic opportunity that we have the ability to work with so many students. Staying on the, the subject matter of, of students, but uh, looking at it from your point of view, you completed your undergraduate as well as postgraduate degrees in anthropology at the University of Johannesburg. And you've also taught extensively in this domain with your, your research interests going across gender, education, identity, place, and space. To begin with, can you tell us what attracted you to anthropology? You know, I think if you speak to any anthropologist, they will tell you they stumbled into anthropology by mistake and then just fell in love and stayed there. That's exactly what happened with me. I went to study a BA psychology and I had no idea what subjects to choose and I think I wanted to do history and one of the, the professors that was there said to me, no, don't do history, do anthropology. It's only for a semester. So I walked into my first anthropology class and we had this professor and um, he had a bald head and he had just come back from the field and his head was covered with mosquito bites. And he started speaking and he just opened up this whole new world for me of trying to understand people. Um, and that's, I, I, I started there and I decided, no, one semester isn't enough, so I, um, it became my second major. And then it just from there, it just every time I had a choice about what to study or what to do next, anthropology was just there. I, I was incredibly lucky in terms of being in a department at UJ that was really incredibly supportive. And I had incredibly strong uh, women lecturers throughout my anthropology studies. And I think that was part of what influenced me towards anthropology and staying in anthropology. It's just that support that I didn't feel I was getting in some of the other, you know, some of my other disciplines, not that they were not interesting, but I had the support network in anthropology. And then there was just so much flexibility. Um, part of, if you look at what I've done is, you know, I, I look at something and then I see a connection to something that looks completely different. So, for example, for my master's degree, I looked at um, primary school teachers. And then for my PhD, I did something completely different to look at public space. And I like that flexibility that anthropology gives you of saying that, you know, you can be interested in a whole range of, of, of things and there is scope for you to to do work in it, to um, to, uh, to 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 publish, to do research, and that's why I loved anthropology. And within the research space, so you mentioned for your masters, you'd focused on primary school t teaching, and for your PhD, public space. What have been some of the most significant findings? So for my PhD, I was really interested in. Uh, what was happening at that time, sort of the early 2009, the, well, 2009 around there, is that I've become interested in public space and cities specifically and how people use that public space. 
at around the same time, there was lots of movements around public space in the world. And there was Tahrir Square in, uh, in Egypt, the Occupy Wall Street movement, that was really about how people were using public space for active citizenship, for active citizenry. Um, so I was interested in, but what is this connection between between public space and uh, and and active citizenship and democracy, for example? So I conducted um, ethnography in Jubei Park, which just meant I get to spend a lot of time hanging out in the park, which is a fantastic way to do research. You get to be outside the whole day, and I was trying to identify how people use that space and what we can then say about democracy. And what I realized is that the way that the space is managed by um, by the city, for example, really allows or disallows certain things. So the way that the city of Johannesburg manages that space, it's very, uh, it doesn't allow for openness, if you can call it that. It's It's a closed space because they are trying to manage the people in it instead of allowing people to develop inside it inside of it um, uh, what I also sort of found along the way um, is how women use the space is incredibly it's different from how men use the space men would come to public spaces and specifically to bear park on their own you know they hang out on their own they'd sleep there while women were always in groups um, they would never you know it's either a group of women or a woman with a male partner. So there's also really interesting things about how do we make space for women in cities so that they can use space freely. Um, so that was sort of from my PhD perspective, um, what was some of the interesting things for me. Hmm. Um, yes, I mean, it must have been a fascinating topic in terms of how different different people use spaces and the role of, of space in society. As an educator, and with UNISA being a distance learning institution, I'd imagined that the way that you teach is different to a a more traditional face-to-face approach. Can you tell us a little bit more about the blended learning that you make use of to engage with students across the world? Yes, UNISA is a very interesting space because we have these huge numbers of students that's all over. Um, you know, I have students living in uh, the inner city of Pretoria, but then I also have students in Ethiopia, in um, uh, in uh, 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 Vietnam, for example, in New York. Uh, but most of our students are South African. A large number of them sits in uh, urban areas, but we still have a, a, a huge component of rural students. So you have these contradictions within our student body, and it gets quite complicated because you cannot always assume that for a student that they would have the same connectivity in uh, Litsikisiki versus Pretoria. You know, so for for the ones you know, so you have to keep that in mind with whatever blend you do. So our blend normally, when we speak in the UNITA context, is a blend of a postal delivery sort of, you know, printed study guides uh, that, you know, this is your study program and this is what you have to do for the year. 
and then online engagements or engagements via social media, for example, WhatsApp we use a lot. Um, some people use uh, Facebook, uh, um, you know, those social media platforms. Then we also have a component of face-to-face -face classes that students can attend. But again, you have to think of, but can the student in a very rural area, is it possible for them to come to an urban area or to, urban, to an area where we have a regional center? But students really do crave that contact. So a lot of what you do in distance education is, is to think of ways to, uh, to uh, it's called transactional distance, right? It's the thing where you say, okay, how do I break, breach this distance that exists between myself and the student, but also between students themselves. Because part of the learning pro process is not just that they uh, engage with you as a lecturer, but also that they engage with one another. So a large part of what we're thinking about is how do we uh, cover that distance in a way that still is just towards students that don't necessarily have access. And I think what we found in a lot of cases is that students have access to devices, but they don't necessarily have access to to the internet, you know, to data, because data is so expensive in this country. So when we're looking at devices, it's things like mobile phones, tablets. Exactly. Um, so students would have access to that, but they won't necessarily have access to 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 data to use those in a way that. Uh, that you can do transformative teaching. So it's it's a balancing act between, you know, using these technologies to, to, to bridge the distance, but then also accepting that some for some students this is is problematic. But also dealing with it's really interesting dealing with students' fears of technology. <clears throat> I think we tend to think that you know, all students or all young people are equally comfortable with technology. And it might be that they're comfortable with certain technologies. So they're comfortable sending WhatsApps, but they're less comfortable with, for example, working on the learning management system or creating uh, work together, for example, on a Google document, um, because that's not something that they've been taught. So you're teaching them those skills as well, those technology skills. And I think if we can get it right, both in distance education but also in face-to-face -face education, technology does have a transformative aspect to it. But I think where we are in our technology use is often, you know, we just use it and we don't think about our use or how it can be transformative. So, uh, so there is still lots of work that we need to do, both as both, both for students, but also then for ourselves to learn, um, you know, how do we use these available technologies in a way that empowers students. And it's something that's going to continue to develop as technology develops as well. Mm, definitely. We, we can't escape technology. But I think as well, with the, from a UNISA point of view, you, you're all about educating at scale. And realistically, the only way that you can educate at scale is through technology. Well, so technology is everything, right? Um, the printed word is technology as well. 
Uh, so then, then let's say di- let's say digitally because <laughs> yes, no, no, I, I, I do, I, I do understand what you mean. Yes, that is definitely one way um, we 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 are um, educating at scale, and you know, unfortunately, the the old way of of the old way of doing UNISA studying through UNISA that a lot of people are used to, you know, uh, you receive a printed study guide. Um, you go, you do assignments, you come to write an exam. Um, that's sort of the traditional distance education mode. But that is very isolating towards students because there's not a, a chance to uh, to interact with people. At the same time, um, if you're talking about going online and online education, there's massive resources needed. Just um, not only in terms of what students need in terms of devices and access to data, but also in terms of teaching staff how to do this, how to, to be digitally literate and be critical thinkers about technology. Um, so that's one of the barriers towards going online. So online education at scale is actually really difficult. Um, and it's something I think that all of the all universities will struggle with. It's easier if you have one campus and you can uh, get students into a computer lab. Um, but when you're when you do distributed learning, where people are all over the place, it gets the the the, the planning challenges around it, and also um, paying for it is really. You know, if you're thinking about building a learning center uh, in a rural area, that is money for buildings, that's money for computers, for um, for internet access, and it's so it's 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 there's a huge planning thing and forward forward thinking thing needed uh, in this space. There's a lot more resources required than than simply going online. Yes, and even simply go even if you can assume that everyone has the resources, you know, um, everyone has the tablet, they have the data. Um, you know, it's resource, it's the it's the computer infrastructure. One one problem that we always have at UNISA is because we have so many students, um, if we have students submitting assignments uh, digitally, which more and more students do, so, um, they they might not be online the whole time, but they submit their written their essay um, via the internet. So then you have to think about you know our further capacity, um, and that's huge. You know we we've had instances where students have a large number of students have deadlines on the same day and our service just cannot handle it. So everything falls down and that's when, you know, you hear in the media, oh, UNISA is down again, it's not working. It's because there's so many students and what we need to, to handle those students are actually really big. Yeah. The, the hidden layers of, of infrastructure which, which are so necessary. Oh, definitely. Today we're talking to Dr. Ingrid Murray, who chairs the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at UNISA. In the previous segment of the show, she explained the dynamics and the differences between archaeology as well as anthropology. We also explored some of the work that she does at UNISA 
And uh, looking at UNISA as a distance learning institution for 350,000 students, 7,000 of which are housed in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Murray, this program is all about gender equality. And one question that I'd like to ask you about it concerns your perspectives regarding women's empowerment and gender equality legislation, particularly in terms of, of closing gender gaps such as pay, promotion, or position. Yes, I think in South Africa we we are ahead of the curve in some ways in terms of having changed laws and this constitution that we have that really is unjust in terms of looking at things like women's empowerment and gender equality. But the social cultural norms have not necessarily kept up with our changed laws. And I think it's really important that these um, legislation exist and make sure that it stays on the agenda. Um, and I think it's also important to acknowledge the power of representation in terms of, um, you know, in terms of women being visible. I had a young colleague who said to me when he started at, at uh, UNISA, at that stage we had a, de a black woman dean, and he said to me it, it, it meant so much to him when, when he saw her, when he met her, because this was somebody that could be his mother or his grandmother. And if she could have such a position, he can be an academic too. You know, there's space for someone like him, a young black man, to become an academic as well. So I think there's, there's two things. I think it's, we must definitely look at legislation, but then we also must look at representation. And the role modeling effects with representation, as you say, it, it just it can't be underestimated on when people see someone in a, in a role that they can identify with. Definitely. I think part of the reason why I became an anthropologist is because I had so many fantastic women role models around me the whole time. Um, and it's really interesting, this one thing about academia is that if you look at academic structures, women are by far the majority in junior positions. So the people that does the teaching, they tend to be women. But we only have three women VCs in this country. Um, and you know, that's, that's problematic for me. So how do we change that? Even though you know, it's, we have all this legislation and there is this focus, there are very few women VCs in this country, yet the majority of the 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 forward the, the forward facing staff members, the teaching staff, are women. Um, so how do we change that? And I don't have an answer for that, except that you're very very deliberate in putting people in places. So looking at things from an affirmative action point of view, if you've got uh, a number of candidates on on making an affirmative action policy in place. Yes, definitely, and I think um, it's. Uh, I think if you are faced with two candidates um, that both can do the job, they're equally strong. Go for the woman candidate. Go for the black woman candidate. Um, and yeah, so for me, um, 
policies that, that ensure equity is incredibly important. I think we cannot close our eyes and say that we don't need policies and laws that promotes this because I think then we'll be static in some ways. It won't change by itself. And this week, you know, we just had the cabinet announcement and the, the president declared that for the first time ever, we have got a cabinet which is evenly split, 50-50, male-female. I wonder how that conscious decision will perhaps influence other decisions in, in different spheres, whether it's in the academic space or, or business environment. I think it will, um, because it, it was clearly a very conscious decision uh, to, to have this. And I think if you look at the cabinet, there's some incre- incredible woman that's part of the cabinet. And hopefully that inspires um, civil society, academic institutions, private institutions to really think about their gender and race representativity as well. And in terms of your career, have you witnessed changes towards gender progression? You know, in terms of in my very immediate environments, I've always been incredibly lucky in terms of having strong women role models around me that were mentoring me. Um, so, so in terms of my very immediate career, not really because I've always had those strong women around me, and I still have. Um, but I think if you look at larger university structures, not just UNISA, but all of them, there hasn't been as much change as there should have been. Um, one thing that I think is incredibly positive is uh, for academia in South Africa is Dr. Pandul's Commission of sexu- uh, on Sexual Harassment in Universities, and I'm very glad that that is going to go forward even though she's not our minister anymore, sadly. Um, and I think that will always uh, that will also bring a very positive um, change to academia. Looking at the younger cohort that are are coming through as as young academics, and you being in the position that you are now as as chair and and you know having gone through with your your career, what advice would you give to to young girls or young women coming up through the ranks? You know, I think the biggest thing that I can say is um, that don't deny yourself opportunities. Take every opportunity that's there. But also be careful of, I think there's two things in academia. The one is often women are expected to do the housework of academia. Um, You know, the and there's two things, the housework in terms of, you know, if you have a function, who cleans up afterwards? You know, it's often the expectation that it's not, well, I'm not even sure it's the expectation, just women tends to to do that kind of housework. But it's also of um, teaching versus research, where teaching is often seen within academia as the the feminine care work that needs to be done, while research is the thing that's going to get you promoted. So you often get um, women being more involved in the in the teaching, the feminine care work part, while not being valued as highly as research. So for me, take those opportunities. And I think there's this this wonderful quote from 
well, not quote the saying that's not come up, uh, take back your time. Um, take your time to, to not be, uh, and not fall into that trap of doing the housework. And time's one resource that we absolutely cannot get back. Oh, definitely. And, and there's never enough time in academia. No, but you're, you're so right in terms of where you invest your time and and what the outputs are going to be towards your career and its and its contribution. Definitely. Going back to towards yourself, uh, a question that I always ask my guests who've, who've reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields is about some of the factors that they consider to have contributed to, to their success. So some people talk about the way that they were brought up or a particular person in their life or um, perseverance or hard work. Can you tell us what you would say have been some of your key drivers? Uh, you know, for me, I... Um I dropped out of school when I, I was in standard nine, and I so I wrote matric at the end of this year through through a correspondence uh, school, funnily enough, and I didn't pass matric. I didn't pass math, so which meant at that stage that you didn't pass matric. Tried again this next year, still failed, and then I was completely set loose. I didn't know what what was going on, and um, so for a few years I worked. I travelled. And eventually, I came back to I came to university through age exemption. I was sufficiently old enough that they would now give me a chance to prove myself. And I, when I got to university, it it was a completely different kettle of fish. I loved it. I, from the moment I walked into it, I felt at home. I felt. Um, you know, this was the place for me. It was talking about the things that I was interested in. I had no mathematics, which made me very happy. Um, and I just, I kept going from there. So I, I didn't plan to become an academic. I was going to do my BA degree and then go travel again or, you know, find a job. But every time there was just moments where I accepted the next challenge. And I was incredibly grateful for that. And I think what it taught me is um, always accept the next opportunity. Don't worry so much about what was coming. And I think the biggest lesson of what I learned is um, PhDs, and I think academia is tests of endurance, not intelligence. Um, can you keep going? And for me, that was the thing, always just keep, keep going. Um, and that would be, I think for me, that's, that's the big thing is that keep going. You also said accepting the next opportunity. And I think sometimes people get a little bit fixated on, on what they're doing, that they almost operate with blinkers, that they can't see those other opportunities. Mm -hmm. oh, definitely. Um, yeah. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today, we are in Youth Month. Could you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to young ladies in the continent that are listening to the show? You know, I, the, for me there's, there's a few things. I would say as an anthropologist, always look for different perspectives. Don't accept what, what is there as this is necessarily the right thing, the, the only thing, the only way of looking at things. 
Um, and I then believe in yourself, you can do it, um, whatever obstacle or barrier there is. And then lastly, I think for me, it's working towards a just world and seeing yourself in that world as having a right to belong to that world. There's a wonderful book by Bell Hooks about love, where she talks about love as a verb, as an action. Um, and for me, if you if you have if you walk to work towards love as a critical, not love as this you know fuzzy feeling that you get, but love as um, love for society, love for other people, love for yourself, and and along with that critical hope, not just oh I hope things will be better, but I recognise what is wrong and I will work towards making those things that is wrong better. Those are, it's a really, really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and for sharing your, your views on anthropology, archaeology, the, the gender narrative and some of the things that are changing but that we need more change to happen in. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Ingrid Murray, who chairs the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at UNISA.